Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I welcome Leah Stokes, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, to discuss her fascinating and timely new book, Short-Circuiting Policy, Oxford University Press 2020. The book analyzes policymaking in Texas, Kansas, Arizona, and Ohio, to understand the dynamics of clean energy policy. Short-circuiting policy urges political scientists to refocus on interest groups and the manner in which they prevent or reverse clean energy policies. Her case studies reveal the particular conditions and mechanisms through which interest groups short-circuit policy by undermining policy feedback. Welcome to New Books in Political Science, Leah. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, Susan. So before we dive into the argument of the book, I want to ask you some questions about how you came to write on this project and the kind of tools that you needed. This is a book that is wide ranging. It's political science, but it's also science. So tell me a little bit about how you came to write this book. Yeah, so I have been very interested in climate change as an issue um, for, for the last 15 years. And I went to graduate school uh, in my PhD to try to understand the climate crisis in more detail. And what I uh, discovered is what a lot of people discover, which is that a lot of the barriers to acting on the climate crisis are political. And so I set out to uh, understand the politics of clean energy. And uh, the book was really... Um, in many ways inspired by one of my late advisors named Judy Laser, who was a very important political scientist working on environmental policy, who similarly kind of bridged disciplines because political science hasn't had as much of a focus on the environment in the past. So uh, I really learned a lot from her in-depth research about federal policy and how conservatives have worked to roll back environmental laws like the... Uh, Clean Air Act and the Endangered Species Act. Uh, She wrote a book called Open for Business, um, and that was a really important book in my own thinking about my project. Why do you think political scientists have shied away from the environment? I think that understanding the climate crisis or mercury pollution or plastic pollution or a lot of the topics that I focus on in my research It requires a technical understanding of the issues as well as the typical things we need to know in political science. And um, while there's been a big move in our discipline to become more technical in the methods that we use, there hasn't really been the same movement to understand technical policy areas. And of course, healthcare is a very difficult and technical area. So would be understanding social security, lots of policy areas 
are things that people need to study for quite a while to even understand them. And I don't think that there's a lot of emphasis in our discipline on having substantive knowledge. But I think that is changing. And I do see a growing interest in climate change within political science. I was struck in your acknowledgments, the extent to which you were taking classes in multiple departments outside of political science. And it's very clear in the book that you not only bring that knowledge, but you are an excellent translator for political scientists who you do not need for the audience to understand the science because you do such a good job of explaining it. Oh, that's so nice of you to say, Susan. I really appreciate that. That was one of the goals of the book. You know, it's hard to write a book that's sort of um, a translation book that bridges a lot of areas. So I wanted people who understand the science of climate change to be able to pick it up and think about the politics and the institutional barriers. And then I wanted people who were really steeped in American politics to pick it up and get a primer on climate change and the energy system. And so that translational role is a really key goal for the book. And it's um, really encouraging to hear that I have mostly succeeded. <laughs> well, from, from this reader, you definitely succeeded. You open the book with a puzzle. Uh, Texas adopted an innovative clean energy law in 1999. The law was implemented well and led to rapid increase in clean energy, moving the state from 1% to 12% in renewables in a decade George W. Bush claimed the law, the result of his success as he was running for the presidency. And the hope was that new interest groups that were benefiting from the policy would ally with environmentalists. But even though wind energy was successful, renewable energy policy in Texas didn't succeed. Um, And you say that the policies were short-circuited. Uh, I wonder if you could explain that term as you tell us a little bit more about what happened in Texas. So a lot of people, including within our discipline, have studied the Texas case of clean energy. This is something that um, Barry Rabe has uh, studied in his work, as well as David Kaniski and Stephen Solbeher. So it's actually a pretty well-known case, especially for climate policy and clean energy policy, which is not very dominant in political science. But a lot of political scientists have gone in and done the hard work of trying to understand the Texas case. And the conclusions that they draw are the same that many in the media draw, which is that Texas is a wonderful success. And I start out the book by questioning that basic assumption, because although the first clean energy law passed in Texas in 1999, really did kickstart the wind energy industry. If you think about where Texas needs to be when it comes to cleaning up their energy system versus where it is, the state is actually behind. And Mm. when you dig into what happened next, specifically what happened to the solar energy policy that was passed on the heels of that wind energy law, well, the fact is that that policy was never implemented. And it was resisted very heavily by fossil fuel companies um, and to a lesser extent in the Texas case by utilities. And so even though we got laws on the books that were supposed to kickstart solar in Texas, 
they never actually got implemented. And I talk about how interest groups are able to, what I say, short circuit policy, which is um, a phrase that actually comes from Schatzschneider's work. And, the, and they're able to do it in a number of ways. But the point is that even if you get a little bit of policy that's supposed to kickstart a feedback process where basically interest groups become more powerful and they're able to then pass new policies that then amplify their power even more. So you have this iterative relationship between politics and policy that that does not necessarily play out. And that when you have political actors that are incumbents, they don't just lay down and die and they may not allow new interest groups to lock in policy over time. Um, you argue that ambiguity plays a central role in policy change, and, and you name this mechanism the fog of enact, enactment, um, the, this gap between actors' expectations and the policy's actual outcome. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about what you mean by fog of enactment and, again, the role it plays in these case studies. Yeah. So what I kept finding again and again in my research was that people didn't necessarily know what they were agreeing to when they passed a law. And that idea has been emphasized before in political science and public policy research. If you go back to the work of John Kingdon, um, if you go back to Deborah Stone's work, they talk a lot about ambiguity and uncertainty and how politicians, their staff, and even interest groups don't necessarily know what the law is going to do. And so I developed that idea extensively in the book. And as you say, I have a concept called the fog of enactment. And what I basically argue is that a lot of the times, especially when you have a new kind of policy, uh, you have, uh, you're working in a technical area like the energy system, you have policies interacting across scales of government. Uh, you have innovation going on in the background in that technology. It's really hard for actors to know what will happen. And uh, I tried to validate some of that theory by doing a survey with both legislators and their staff across the states. So I fielded a, a survey with state legislators and their staff. And what I found overwhelmingly is that these um, politicians and their uh, staff do not know what policies are likely to do. And you see the same thing playing out at the federal level. If you look at, uh, for example, the Trump tax cuts, that law was initially, when the first bill was passed, I believe in the House, uh, nobody really knew what it meant. And they realized some of the interest groups after they passed the first version of the bill that it was actually going to increase the corporate tax rate when it was intended to decrease it. And so they had to go back to the chamber and pass a new version of the bill. And when they were doing these last uh, minute votes, people were literally looking at the margins of the bill for what the text meant. And these bills were like hundreds of pages long. There were major reforms. And you actually see some examples of politicians, I talk about Nancy Pelosi in the book, literally pointing to the fact that it's hard for the public to understand what's going on with legislation, but also interest groups and their staff. And so that has consequences for policy feedback and for interest groups, because sometimes one interest group can be more knowledgeable about a, what a law is likely to do than another one. And they can kind of use that ambiguity as a weapon 
to gain advantage in the legislative process. No, I think that the, the book is so interesting and it, it's, it's making two, two arguments at the same time, one very specific to this policy, but, but more about policy in general and another argument, I guess, about political science, because it, it seems to me that you're urging political science to take a step back, to look at Schatzheider and Kingdon, to pay more attention to interest groups than political science has tended towards in recent years. Yes, that's definitely true. I think that there has been a resurgence of research on interest groups, and some of the most exciting work that I see out there is coming from studies of interest groups. There was a consensus in the mid-2000s that things like campaign contributions and lobbying didn't really matter because when people ran regressions, they couldn't find a correlation between roll call votes and campaign contributions from interest groups. And new work, um, I think, by David Brockman, Josh Calla, my co-authors, Alex Hurdle-Fernandez and Matt O'Mildenberger, as well as uh, the giants in our field in this area, people like Theda Scotchpole, Paul Pearson, and Jacob Hacker. All of these, um, oh, and I should also say Jake Grumbach, all of these people are starting to show the ways that interest groups do affect American politics. And I think the conventional wisdom that our discipline holds that interest groups don't really matter that much, um, first of all, that isn't really supported by what the media tends to say, what politicians tend to say, what the public tends to say. And it could be that all of them are wrong, as is the case, for example, with term limits, the conventional wisdom in the right. public is wrong in that case. But I don't think that's the case for interest groups. I think that for example, what Elizabeth Warren has said in her uh, campaign for the nomination about the sort of corruption as she talks about it, what she's really pointing to is the ways that interest groups have captured the American political system and all the consequences that has for things like inequality, but also in my case for the climate crisis. And um, Specifically in the case of climate change, we have so much new research coming out about the ways that fossil fuel companies and electric utilities have denied the science of climate change, have spent, you know, huge sums of money over decades to sow doubt amongst the public, to sow doubt amongst, amongst politicians, and to hold off climate action. So I try to build on that work in my book and just show how powerful these fossil fuel companies and electric utilities are in terms of capturing the legislative system and not just doing climate denial, but also climate delay, where they slow down the progress on clean energy that is happening at the state level. I think one of the highlights of the book is the way in which you carefully demonstrate how implementation is part of the policy feedback, that ambiguity shrinks after implementation. Actors learn, they update their beliefs, and that makes them more powerful in uh, uh, when, when, when other forms of clean energy are suggested. And I think you do a really great job describing this mechanism through which the interest groups try to just not just drive policy change beforehand, but also after implementation. Yeah, I really built on the work of uh, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson there, their idea of organized combat. And 
when I was reading the policy feedback literature, when I was sort of early on in this project, what I noticed is a kind of under theorization of the role of implementation, that there's a lot of focus on policy design, that if we just get the policy designed right in the legislative process, that it will kickstart a new political dynamic and lock itself in over time. And what the idea of organized combat points us to is the ongoing contestation between interest group advocates and opponents that, you know, just because we get rules on the books does not necessarily mean that they get implemented. You can see this all over the place with environmental policy. In fact, before I went back to do my PhD, I worked in the parliament of Canada uh, for some members of parliament who were on environment committees and For example, with the Species at Risk Act, which is very similar to the Endangered Species Act, we would have witnesses come into the committee and they would basically talk about how the law was not being followed, the law was not being implemented. And you see that, for example, with the Clean Air Act in the United States, the endangerment finding, which was a legal ruling, required the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate carbon dioxide as a pollutant. And if memory serves, that was back in 2009 that that um, case was decided between Massachusetts and EPA. And yet, you know, it took a decade more to, um, well, first, oh, the Obama administration tried to pass one version of the policy. They didn't get all the way through the regulations. Then the Trump administration took office and they basically rolled it back. And another one of my favorite examples of this is the mercury roll. Um, In 1990, there was an amendment passed to the Clean Air Act, a very important one. It set up uh, nitrous oxide and sulfur dioxide trading, which is sort of where the cap and trade idea for carbon comes from. And it also set limits on mercury pollution, which comes from, in part, combusting coal. And that law was not finalized until, I believe, 2013. So we're talking about decades that went by between the enactment of that policy and its effective implementation. And part of what happened is that it got caught up in the courts. And so that is a way that interest groups slow down the policy feedback process, uh, in addition to just resisting the implementations of laws in the bureaucracy by going to commissions and regulatory bodies and saying, oh, no, it shouldn't be interpreted that way or oh, let's water down the way that we write the regulations. And so I think that we need to pay so much more attention, not just to enactment, but to implementation, to really understand the power that interest groups have over policymaking in this country. And in the specific case of the environment and climate change, your uh, uh, charts uh, are emphasizing that speed here matters, not that it doesn't matter in other policy. It obviously has serious effects when we delay implementation of other social policy, economic policy. But your point here is that if uh, if there is a window for reversing course, if there is a window for serious change, this kind of delayed implementation has even more of an effect in climate policy and in clean energy policy than in other policy. Yes, 100%. And there are a number of reasons for that. First of all, climate change is kind of an existential threat. It affects all living beings on this planet. And um, it obeys the laws of physics, not our will or what Congress says in a law. If we continue to pump carbon pollution into the atmosphere... It will end up in the ocean and cause ocean acidification. 
which will uh, lead to coral reefs collapsing, fisheries collapsing. That will really dramatically affect people's ability to feed themselves in poor countries. And we may start to see large-scale migrations of people. In fact, what a lot of people don't understand is that the, the crisis, if we want to call it, at the southern border in the United States is in part linked to climate change because many people in Central America have been dealing with more extreme right. droughts, have been struggling to um, make their livelihood because of instability in farming. And they're coming to the United States in part to try to um, flee from that climate disaster. So the impacts that we see in both the natural system and the human system are accelerating. And then the other issue with not acting on climate change is that the planning decisions for the energy sector are really long. So if we don't get these laws in place for decades, which is what I talk about in the book, mm -hmm. then utilities keep doing what they've always done. They keep building fossil fuel infrastructure. So if you look at, for example, Arizona Public Service, one of the utilities I talk a lot about in the book, they even today put forward plans that have lots of new natural gas infrastructure. And if that is built rather than renewable energy, that will operate for up to you know 40 years or more. And if it doesn't operate for 40 years or more, then we have to bail out those plants basically by paying back that stupid investment that those utilities made. So the decisions that get made today have long-term implications not just for carbon pollution, but for fiscal balances in the states. Because what happened was with coal plants, a lot of these coal plants started to come up for retirement. And things like the mercury rule, which I talked about when it finally got finalized, and I believe it might have been 2011, not 2013. But when that finally got finalized, these utilities were faced with a choice. They could either shut down their plants or they could pour a bunch of debt into the plants to retrofit them so that they could keep operating. And a number of utilities made that decision. And we can see the consequences of that decision in Ohio, for example, where we just in 2019 saw a massive bailout of coal plants where ratepayer money was not going towards building the clean energy future. It was going towards keeping coal plants open until their 80th birthday. So those long planning horizons and the massive amounts of money that goes into these projects and the fact that those companies are often made whole, even if they make bad financial investments, means that the decisions that we make today have very long-term implications for uh, a lot of the things, a stable climate, uh, fiscal balance in state houses, um, you know, local air pollution, uh, in, especially in black and brown communities. So we have to get these decisions right, and we cannot allow utilities and fossil fuel companies to delay any longer. As you look at this, and you have, you have very complicated uh, but yet clear uh, views on this in the book, first of all, you believe there's a role for nuclear energy, and you highlight the problems with closing plants prematurely. I'd like you to talk just a little bit about that, about the role of nuclear and also, if you would clarify for listeners the extent to which states are making their own policy or the national government is either encouraging them in particular directions or directly having an impact on the kind of infrastructure that we have as a nation. 
Well, nuclear is a very interesting example of that state-federal interaction, actually, because many nuclear plants are facing closure today, not because they're not safe to continue operating, but because we do not have a price on carbon pollution. And in the last two decades, rather than cleaning up our electricity system, we've seen a massive boom in fracking which has brought on an enormous quantity of very cheap natural gas. And that cheap natural gas in many markets is uh, flooding that market and suppressing the price of electricity. And that is causing nuclear plants to struggle to compete. Mm -hmm. And so in order to keep nuclear plants operating, if they're safe, you need the state government to basically approve through these public utility commissions additional payments for that nuclear energy, because we don't have a price on carbon. We have never penalized fossil fuels like fossil gas and coal, and therefore renewables and nuclear have a harder time competing. But there is also a really key federal jurisdiction for nuclear energy, and that comes through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is the federal body that license nuclear plants and also gives them license renewals, allows them to stay open longer. And so um, you need both the state government to financially support these uh, big projects, as well as the federal government to relicense them if we're going to keep them open. And my own views on nuclear changed over the course of writing this book. When I started this project, I did not support nuclear. I um, was very influenced by a Buddhist writer named Joanna Macy, who talked a lot about nuclear waste. And I came out of the environmental movement, which has a very strong tradition of um, anti-nuclear action. But I was very influenced by a friend of mine named Jesse Jenkins at MIT. We were grad students together. And what I came to understand is that 55% of the carbon-free electricity in this country today is from nuclear. And when you look at places that have shut down their nuclear plants, that's like Germany, Vermont, California, what happens is that natural gas, which is a fossil fuel, often increases and fills that gap more than renewable energy does. So that means that you can be looking at an increase in the carbon intensity of the electricity system. And we are facing a lot of closures in the coming decades. And that's also a time period where we're going to have to ramp up renewable energy like never before. I've done a lot of work in the book and also in sort of public during the Democratic primary to try to understand what are the pace, what is the pace that we actually need to move? And we're talking about increasing the deployment rate of renewables by at least a factor of 10. And it gets even bigger if you want to do it by, let's say, 2030 or 2035. And if you want to simultaneously clean up the transportation sector, because what that means is that you have to have electric vehicles that are running off of the electricity system. So the pace and scale of this problem are enormous. And um, I have studied in previous work anti-wind backlash from a very fast deployment of wind energy in Ontario, Canada. And I really worry about moving that fast on renewables 
and making sure that we keep that social license to put these projects in people's backyards. So that is why I feel that keeping safe nuclear plants open as long as we can is really important. And I will say that a lot of environmentalists now share that view. I want to ask you a question about the presidential candidates and their approach to climate change. As you listen to them, uh, do any of them incorporate aspects of your claims? Do any of them show more of an acute understanding of interest groups' ability to short-circuit policy? I know you mentioned Elizabeth Warren, but I'd be interested in you elaborating a little bit more on all of them. Yes, I mean, I have followed the Democratic primary very closely on climate policy. I've read all the plans of all the candidates. And I would say that the gold standard is Jay Inslee. When he was running for president, he put out uh, 200 pages of plans on climate. And the people who were writing those plans, uh, Sam Ricketts and Bracken Hendricks, among others, really thought carefully about sequencing and uh, really important points of leverage in the system. So, for example, they talked about rural electric co-ops and the need to do debt relief because they own uh, those utilities own an enormous amount of coal, and they don't have very easy ways to shut those coal plants down after they have put new money into them to retrofit them to be able to continue operating. I would also say that I think that Elizabeth Warren's theory of change is the closest to my own theory of change and certainly reflects the book. Because as I mentioned, she is very clear that the fossil fuel industry has a stranglehold over our political system and that we have to break the oversized influence of interest groups. Now, she does not just talk about that in terms of climate policy. She talks about that for a lot of different policies. But the way she talks about strengthening the regulatory apparatus of the state in order to regulate capitalism and businesses, I think that that is very um, in line with the theory of change that I advance in this book. And I would contrast that a little bit with Bernie Sanders' theory of change which is that he thinks that the key lever in many ways is the public. He thinks that there will be sort of a revolution and that we will overturn the way that the system works and that um, the government will own and operate more of the assets, including of the energy system. And I tend to think that mobilizing the public at that scale is very difficult. I have definitely been influenced by the work of Hari Han in that regard. Um, I, I think it's very important to have the public involved, and I talk about that a lot in the book, but I think in many ways interest groups can help get the public involved, whether that's NGOs or clean energy companies. And where I tend to diverge with him is that he thinks that if the electricity system is publicly owned, that if we have more publicly owned utilities and rural electric co-ops, that that will solve the problem. And in the conclusion of the book, I do a lot of work explaining why I don't think that's the case. Because mm -hmm. it turns out we have publicly owned utilities and rural electric co-ops in this country for various historical reasons. And I spent a lot of time in the last couple of months writing the book, digging into whether or not these utilities are any cleaner. Because if the theory is 
we get things to be publicly owned and then they do what the public wants, namely have more clean electricity, then we need to actually show empirically that that is the case. And actually, that is not the case when you look at the data. Publicly owned utilities and rural electric co-ops are not cleaner than privately owned utilities. And in fact, in a lot of states, the clean energy laws that I talk about in this book, the Renewable Portfolio Standard and the Net Metering Law, they actually exempt public utilities and co-ops from having to comply with the law. So you can see examples of these public entities you know, using the same kind of tactics that the private utilities do. They, they spend money on campaigns to try to elect Republicans, to try to roll back policy, to make it weaker. I would say they're not as bad actors as the very worst private utilities in the, my book. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also many private utilities, or at least a handful, who are trying to decarbonize, the classic example being Excel Energy in Colorado. So all of which is to say, I don't think that ownership structure is the key variable to the clean energy future that we need. And Bernie Sanders has really uh, argued that. And he has also argued very much against nuclear. And for all the reasons I outlined previously, I don't agree with that position. So while I think that he um, is really a great advocate for climate action, he speaks very powerfully, and I appreciate how much he has made this a centerpiece of his campaign, I tend to disagree with him on a few of the details. Uh, And what about Biden and what about the Obama administration overall in terms of how they handled it? Um, Is that do you look back with any sort of fondness on some of that or do you look back critically on that time? It is difficult to understand the Obama administration, not because I don't think Obama personally cares about climate change, but because what he was able to do and what he was able to lock in per this policy feedback point that I make in the book was kind of minor. There were a lot of policies that were supposed to be sticky, whether that's the clean power plan or the... um, regulations for cars. And we have seen that the Trump administration has managed to roll them back, which speaks to the contingent nature of policy feedback that I talk a lot about in my book. Um, In addition, the Obama administration presided over a massive increase in fossil fuel extraction through fracking, Mm -hmm. which is not just about natural gas, but actually a lot about oil. And I don't think we can just lay that at the feet of the Obama administration, but I think it creates a kind of mixed legacy. And when you see people like Amy Klobuchar running and talking during the debates about natural gas as a bridge fuel, you know, Mm -hmm. that is not how we should be thinking today. I think it is how people were thinking when Obama took office, but We have now understood that fracking has a lot of um, pollution involved in it. Specifically, a lot of fossil gas is released during the process, maybe as much as 3 or 4%. That's this thing we call methane leakage. And if you have methane leakage at 4% or higher, natural gas actually has a higher carbon footprint than coal. So the transition from coal to natural gas becomes much more complicated from a climate perspective 
as we reckon with the leakage problem. So um, I think that the Obama administration tried very hard. Of course, they did not pass a signature legislative package. The Waxman-Markey bill ultimately failed. And some may say that they focused more on the Affordable Care Act than the Waxman-Markey bill. Um, So I think a lot of environmental advocates are fearful that were we to have a next Democratic administration, we really need them to make climate the top priority because despite, I think, the very good efforts by lots of people in the Obama administration, it never really became uh, the signature issue that it must be in order to tackle this problem. Let me ask you a question about partisanship. If you go back to the 70s and look at the signature policies that were passed, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, all of them were passed under Republican President Richard Nixon by almost affirmation in the Congress. There was such a consensus that there was an issue with air and water that needed to be treated. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about why you think this has become one of the more partisan issues that um, uh, that we now, when we now look at environmental policy? That's a question that I take up throughout the book. And what I believe, based on the evidence, is that interest groups drove partisan polarization on climate change. Specifically, fossil fuel companies and electric utilities invested a lot of money into climate denial. You can see this in the work of uh, Justin Farrell, a sociologist at Yale University. He has shown that the reports that these fossil fuel companies uh, wrote denying climate change ended up in the speeches that our presidents made, as well as in the news media. And it certainly has permeated the thinking of many Republican politicians. So I don't think that we would be where we were today if interest groups hadn't spent decades denying climate science. And what I do in my book, building off the work of um, Naomi Oreskes, who uh, was a co-author of the book called Merchants of Doubt and has done a lot of work documenting the history of climate denial in the fossil fuel industry, is I document uh, the history of environmental denial, climate denial, climate delay in electric utilities. And it goes back quite a ways, actually. And that's something that I'm working on in in ongoing research as well. So um, I think that that doubt really impeded the public's ability to rise up in the way that we saw during the environmental movement uh, in the 1970s when we passed those landmark laws. And as Theda Scotchpole has pointed out in a great white paper that she wrote on the death of the uh, Waxman-Markey bill, a key variable in our inability to pass federal climate legislation is a lack of public engagement on the issue. Mm-hmm. So that is why I am heartened by new efforts by young people, whether that's the Fridays for Future movement where they're protesting on Fridays or the Sunrise movement or a general emphasis on trying to get more public engagement on climate change. Because I think we're going to need that if we ever hope to pass the kind of legislation we need. Um, 
Before we conclude, let me ask you what you're working on now. What's the next project? Well, I have been doing an enormous amount of public writing and media interviews on some of the topics that we've talked about, such as the Democratic primary. And to be honest, it is eating into my research time. I mean, I've I done, yeah, I've done probably up maybe as much as 200 interviews with the media in the last two years. Uh, some, de- some days I do two or three or more. Um, and it's been very fulfilling and I feel that I should be doing this work because of the climate crisis, but it certainly eats into the the research time. But I have a lot of projects in the docket. Uh, As I mentioned, I have a project uh, documenting what utilities knew about climate change and when, and their efforts to sow um, doubt through climate denial. Uh, I have a project looking at wind projects in the United States and protests against them and trying Mm -hmm. to understand why people protested against these projects, but not those projects. Uh, With some co-authors, we're looking at the effect of um, electricity shutoffs that are happening in California, in part to try to reduce fire risk because of uh, the climate crisis. Um, And I'm sure I'm forgetting approximately 500 other projects that I have on my docket that are mostly languishing away as I uh, do an enormous amount of public... uh, scholarship, basically. Um, So yeah, there's a lot that I'm working on. A lot of it is climate related. Oh, and the other thing I should mention is I have a series of projects with um, Alex Hurdle Fernandez, Maddo Mildenberger, and David Brockman, where we are looking at legislative staff in Congress, in state houses, and how they understand public preferences, of course, on climate change, but on a wide variety of issues. And the first uh, paper in that sort of series we published in the APSR last year. And we have um, a state version of that paper. We also have a, a paper where we've interviewed chiefs of staff and legislative directors in Congress. And um, now we're looking at how the public communicates with Congress and how that affects how Congress thinks about what the public wants on a wide variety of issues. So that's kind of my bread and butter American politics uh, research agenda right now. Well, after you're done with the interviews and wrap some of this stuff into another book, we hope you come back on New Books in Political Science and tell us more about the next project. Um, Short-circuiting policy is a remarkably important book, uh, and it's an accessible book. And I want to recommend to readers that nobody should be afraid of this book. Um, The science is explained uh, in clear understandable terms, and so is the politics. But this is also an important book in terms of re-gauging how we think about interest groups in um, political science. So the book, Short-Circuiting Policy by Oxford University Press, published in 2020, is coming out when, Leah? I believe if you pre-order it you can from the Oxford University Press website, you can get it March 18th. But if you miss that deadline... You can order it on Amazon or your local bookseller, wherever you like, by uh, April 15th is when they're saying it will come out. Do you have a brick-and-mortar bookstore that you would like to shout out here on New Books? Well, my local bookstore is called Chaucer's. It's very near my house, but I don't know if they carry academic books. But I guess in, uh, what's the name of that great one in New York City right near Columbia University? What's that called? The Strand. Uh, I think it's called The Strand. Yeah. The Strand is a great 
uh, bookstore that I know carries a lot of academic books. And that's another place you can definitely get a copy. So pre-order short-circuiting policy from Oxford University Press on the Oxford University Press website or go into your favorite brick and mortar and demand uh, Leah Stokes's uh, exciting new book. Thank you so much for joining us today, Leah. Thank you so much for having me on, Susan, and for all your kind words. It takes so long to write a book, so uh, it really means a lot to hear that you liked it. Uh, it, it was a terrifically accessible book and uh, brought me back to a lot of my graduate school training and early work in environmental policy. So it was really a joy to read, and I recommend it to all. Thanks so much. Thank you. 